You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Molly, I've been going through some of my old photographs here. Yeah, how many do you have there? I, I, I estimate about five or 10,000 old uh, negatives oh my gosh. I need to scan. Yeah, that doesn't count the slides. But here's a picture of my apartment from Charlottesville, Virginia, when I oh lived there. Oh, my. Where did you live? In the top floor? Well, I lived on both floors. It was a two-story apartment. But the interesting thing is, you look in the back there. There are the Blue Ridge Mountains. Beautiful. Did you go to them? Did you travel through them? Oh, often. But when I first took an airplane out of Charlottesville, of course, we flew over those Blue Ridge Mountains. And behind them, of course, is another ridge of mountains, <laughs> the Shenandoah Mountains. And in fact, keep going west and you cross you know, the, the Appalachians and the Alleghenies. When you look at a satellite photo of this whole area or Google Earth or something like that, you see all those mountain ranges are just part of a long chain that goes all the way from Georgia up to New England. So the idea is if you're standing in your front yard in your apartment in Charlottesville, you can't see the big geographic connections and and the layout of the area. You have to step back, really, to get the big picture. Indeed. And, And that happens in science, too, when it's sometimes necessary to just sort of step back from the little details that we worry about all the time and see the thing that's going on that really extends either over all space or over all time, something that's profoundly important. And so this episode of Big Picture Science tackles the big questions in science. Origin of life, is there life on other planets, consciousness, and all that jazz. Except we don't actually talk about jazz. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. Now, many big scientific questions are found in the field of astrobiology. It's a field, an interdisciplinary one, that studies the origin and the evolution of life on Earth. But its central question puts the astro in the biology. Is there life beyond Earth? In other words, are we alone in the universe? Now, that question has been asked since the Greeks, Molly. At least that was the first time anybody wrote it down. But the Greeks didn't have satellites, robots, spacecraft, and ginormous computer power available. They did have geometry, but it couldn't reveal whether any of those lights in the sky could support life. But today we have a spacecraft named Kepler. And Kepler can tell us what fraction of those stars up there might have planets that are Earth-like, exoplanets that might be be able to support biology. Meanwhile, closer to home, one of the goals of the Mars Science Laboratory will be to scoop up Martian rock and comb it for the chemical building blocks of life. And an array of telescopes right here on Earth might detect a signal of an advanced intelligence as a part of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Journalist Mark Kaufman has interviewed the scientists involved in astrobiology research, and he says it's an exciting time, but that NASA has also been burned in the past with some of its reports of its study of life in the universe. For example, the agency took heat for claims that a Martian meteorite held evidence of past life from the red planet. And, of course, SETI research, the funding for that, was canceled by Congress in the mid-1990s. So NASA tries to be careful not to overplay its research into astrobiology. But the scientific questions that the field poses about life in the universe are among the most compelling that we confront. It's the kind of subject I have found that, one, brings out the skeptic in people, two, brings out the believer in people, and three, brings out huge controversy. People are absolutely fascinated in this subject. They really, really want it to be true that there is life out there. But there are just so many red flags and there are so many complications here that I think taking a low profile is the way to actually make progress. Okay. So it should be clear that astrobiology isn't just about looking for intelligent life, of course. It's looking for any kind of life in space. And beyond that, 
it's uh, something about learning about life on this planet, right? Absolutely. I mean, it is the big questions in many ways of our era or of, of humankind. How was life formed on Earth? And is there life elsewhere? And, you know, this is an issue that's been discussed, that's been thought about, that's been fought about, that's been, you know, a lot of things have happened for centuries, I mean, since kind of the beginning of man. Humans have wanted to know if there's life out there. And now for the first time, really, in humankind, we're in a position where we're close to being able to give an answer. Well, that inevitably leads to my asking, uh, or at least challenging, something you wrote in your book, namely that astrobiology is getting attention by NASA and, and universities, for that matter, because it's getting results but, of course, we still don't have any conclusive proof of life beyond Earth. So what do you mean by getting results? Okay, well, good question, uh, fair question. Uh, what I was thinking of was the results as in the huge menagerie of exoplanets that we now know are out there. So there are planets, and many of them potentially habitable planets, where the elements that are needed for life could land and things could start. We know that the tenacity of life, the ability to live in extreme environments, is much greater than we had ever imagined. We know that through the extremophile research. We know now that there is methane coming out of certain parts of Mars at particular times at particular places, which is suggestive since most of the methane on Earth is biological. doesn't mean it's there, but it certainly could be. But we also know that Mars almost certainly was wet and warm at one point, especially during the time when we were not. So there are a lot of breakthroughs that are not finding that particular extraterrestrial entity, but rather learning how to do it and then also creating kind of a framework that says, you know, it's almost inevitable that it's there, a logical, scientific, deeply researched framework. I think one area in which you might be able to say they are getting results is the study of what are called extremophiles here on Earth, right? I mean, these are forms of life that exist in, well, if you will, uh, habitats that we wouldn't find particularly comfortable, but that might be very widespread throughout the universe. You actually went down into a mine more than a mile deep looking for these kinds of uh, things. What was that like? It, it was actually deeply fascinating. I mean, it was extremely hot, but it was really, really fascinating. This deep, was in, Deeply fascinating. De- deeply, absolutely, as in you know, 1.2 miles deeply. This was in South Africa, and there's a whole field now of research involving South African mines. Uh, as it turns out, these are the deepest mines in the world, and many of the owners allow researchers to go down there. And it began in particular with Tullus Onstott from Princeton. He found a number of microbes, including one that had not had any contact with the surface for something like 20 to 40 million years. But when I was down there, I was with a Belgian nematodologist, a gentleman named Gaetan Bourgani, who was looking for complex life at that level. And in Nature, there's an article that says, by God, they found it. They found complex, multicellular life at those kind of depths. It had not been there that long, but as a proof of principle or of concept, I think it was a huge breakthrough. It says extremophiles do not have to be microbes. They could be more complex. Uh, nematodes are worms, right? I mean, uh, yeah, some, yeah, they're some, round worms. So some sort of worm is living a mile down where there's obviously not a lot of lettuce to eat. I mean, what, what, what was this thing eating down there? It, it, it was eating the microbes. Apparently, it was chasing the bacteria down. I guess it got lost and it just <laughs> kept on going. But they found that these were now, you know, indigenous adapted nematodes that were living in an environment with entirely dark, extremely hot, as in 160 degrees Fahrenheit, in the water, and where there was very, you know, nothing that had to do again with the surface. There was just these microbes that were living largely, what was powering them was the radioactive decay of the rocks nearby. I mean, it's, it's really is, is wild that, stuff. Is that what powered the microbes? I mean, Yes, the, yes. So the microbes are being powered by radioactive decay, and the worms are eating the microbes. Absolutely, that's it. I mean, it, it's science it, fiction, but it's actually true. Nothing eating the worms, I think. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) So if there's complex life a mile down here on Earth, I mean, 
what are we likely to find on Mars? Maybe it isn't just microbial life if there's any life at all on Mars. Well, uh, that's, to me, the take-home message here. I mean, not only does it tell us something fascinating about Earth that we didn't know, I mean, the understanding was that nematodes don't live further down than about 20, 25 feet, and now we're going much further down. But there's every reason to believe that if there was microbial life deep down on Mars, which many people believe is the case, may or may not know in our lifetimes, but hopefully we will. But now there's a suggestion that it could be complex life as well. Mark, we don't even know what life is. I mean, we don't have a good definition for life. And doesn't that seriously compromise our ability to design some sort of robot explorer to go to other places in the solar system and look for it? It makes it more complicated, and and goodness knows it makes for a lot of discussions, uh, you know, at NASA headquarters and a lot of other places. But it also offers a fascinating non-intuitive result, which is the way that we'll find out what life is on Earth probably isn't on Earth. We probably won't know what life is here until we find it somewhere else because then we'll see what some of the parameters actually have to be. We have only one example of life being what we have here, but if we have a second example and it does not have to metabolize or it replicates in ways that are entirely different, you know, then, then we'll get some better sense of what life has to be. It was one of the unexpected conclusions that I came to. And, of course, I, as a journalist, I came to it not as a scientist, but rather scientists told me these things. Well, let me take that one step farther. Uh, People often ask me, given the nature of my job, they say, well, is there any intelligent life on Earth? And, of course, they're making a joke and usually about the political situation. But uh, do you think that the first life we're likely to find beyond Earth is going to be microbial or intelligent? I would say almost certainly microbial, simply because we know that there isn't intelligent life in our solar system. And I would say that the consensus now within the scientific community, the astrobiology community, is that there's a pretty decent chance that there either is or was life on Mars or Enceladus or perhaps uh, Europa. And that would be likely in a microbial or complex form, but of, of a you know a minor way. So intelligent life would have to be very far away. And as someone who went into this without knowing a great deal about SETI and being, I guess, something of a skeptic perhaps, it took me a while to understand that it was that SETI is kind of an essential step in going from the microbial life that hopefully we'll find here to searching for intelligent life, which is really what people would like to find. I mean, microbes are cool, but someone you could talk to is much better. Mark Hoffman, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, you're quite welcome. First Contact, Scientific Breakthroughs for the Hunt for Life Beyond Earth, is the title of Washington Post reporter Mark Kaufman's book. Now, Seth, you and Mark talk about SETI, and we we should keep in mind that there are SETI experiments going on all over the world because SETI is a generic acronym for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But, Seth, this experiment has gone on for 50 years, and there's still been no success. Well, I don't think it's a bad sign. I think that what people do need to keep in mind is that because of improvements in the technology, the speed of the searches is always increasing. So uh, the fact that we haven't found anything so far is, to my mind, not significant. So our tools are getting better, and you're optimistic. I remain eternally optimistic, yes. Coming up, one scientist's best bet for where to find extraterrestrial life. We're taking in the big picture on Big Picture Science. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Big Picture Science. We've heard that one of the biggest questions to ever rattle around the heads of Homo sapiens is, are we alone? But another follows in its heels. If we're not, what's our best bet as a place to find life? A handful of planets and moons in our own solar system are in the running if we're talking about microbial life. 
Now, what do you suppose planetary scientist Carolyn Porco has her money on, or rather her highly sophisticated spectrometer and other imaging instruments? Well, most folks would name that popular destination for spacecraft and possibly one day humans our little ruddy buddy, Mars. Nope. Okay, well, I'll go for Saturn's largest moon, the one wrapped in an atmosphere so smoky with hydrocarbons it'd be unnatural in a noir film, Titan. Nuh-uh. Then it has to be that sheeny, shiny darling moon in the Jovian system coated with a lovely sheath of hard ice, Europa. No, although Europa's a good guess given the likely presence of water under the ice of that moon. The answer is a moon of Saturn. And when Dr. Porco led the imaging team for the Cassini spacecraft's trip to that planet, that moon was in her sights. I was fond of saying before we got into orbit that it was going to be the Europa of the Saturn system, and that's exactly what it's turned out to be. Enceladus is the sixth largest moon that orbits the far-off planet Saturn. The sunlight is weak out there, so you'd expect this moon to be an inert ball of ice. And indeed, water ice covers its surface, but it's fresh-looking water ice. So what's replenishing it? Cassini's 2005 flyby of the moon hinted at the answer, one that Dr. Porco's team had suggested. A surface geyser could be spewing liquid that hits the cold vacuum of space, freezes, and turns into a shower of icy particles. So there was this idea for a long time that there could be geysers on Enceladus. What surprised us beyond measure was the drama, just the dramatic spectacle that the geysers that we have found on Enceladus with Cassini make. These geysers at the South Pole extend hundreds of kilometers above the surface. Remember, the size of Enceladus itself is only 500 kilometers across. That's about 300 miles, about the size of Great Britain, in fact. And they eventually feed a bigger plume that makes it tens of thousands of kilometers outside of Enceladus and actually forms the E-ring. So this is not Old Faithful in Yellowstone. These things aren't going up, you know, 50 feet or anything like that. These things are going up 50 miles or more. Uh, What are they made of? Indeed, we have this spray of fine, icy particles made of water ice, and we also know that those particles are accompanied by vapor. And the vapor consists of water vapor, but we also see things like carbon dioxide, and we see simple organic compounds like propane and methane and so on. Well, anyone who's seen a geyser here on Earth knows that they're caused by underground sources of heat. But doggone it, this is a small moon in the outer solar system that should be just really as cold as anything can be. (laughs) What's the source of the heat? There must be some heat underneath these things. And you're exactly right. This is being produced by heat that we now know. We've measured the heat coming from the south polar terrain of Enceladus with Cassini and The heat is prodigious given that it is, as you say, a moon 10 times farther away from the sun than the Earth is. It's mind-blowing how hot, relatively speaking, the south pole of Enceladus is. And the heat can only be produced by the flexing of the body of Enceladus because of two conditions. One is that the moon Dione is in a resonance with Enceladus that keeps the orbit of Enceladus eccentric. This is a common phenomenon throughout the solar system. It's an orbital resonance. The ratio of the orbital periods of the two moons is integer, like two to one, and that brings about a repeatable condition, a repeatable circumstance where Dione is pulling on Enceladus, always at the same place in its orbit. It makes Enceladus's orbit out of round. So, so it's stretching and squeezing Enceladus. and That's one condition. Okay, the second condition is that because the orbit is eccentric, its position relative to Saturn gets closer, then farther away, then closer, then farther away, and the tides on the body of Enceladus, just like the moon exerts tides on the ocean here on the Earth, those tides on Enceladus vary over an orbital period because the distance to Saturn varies, and that leads to flexure, and that causes heat in the very same way that if you took a paper clip and you stretched it out and then you just flexed it back and forth and back and forth, the center of flexure, the point of flexure would be hot. It's exactly the same process. So this is the source of the heat on Enceladus. And moreover, and this is the really cool thing, it's coming out mostly along these four prominent fractures that we see straddling the south polar terrain of Enceladus. And 
It's really just a startling phenomenon. It's a joy, in fact, actually, to be in a position to be studying something, something we just discovered five years ago, and it's the most spectacular place we have in the solar system, and it turns out it's probably the most favorable place we have in the solar system to search for interesting astrobiological circumstances and, dare I say, maybe life itself. But conceivably, the liquid water that's producing these geysers could have been there for millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, maybe longer, long enough that life might have gotten started? Well, that's the question. That's a question we're really uh, puzzling out right now because if we want to say life got started there, it has to be present for long enough for that to happen. Now, on Earth, we only have an upper bound for how long it took life to develop, and that's a few hundred million years. That seems to be the number that most people agree to. At most, it took a few hundred million years. But that's not to say it didn't take 10 million years. So this body of water, if it has been there 50 million years, but it only takes life 10 million years to develop, it's not out of the question we could find life there. So this is the kind of thing that we're trying to work out now. Since there is the chance that Enceladus has life, there, microscopic life, of course. I mean, how, how could we possibly find it? Could, could we just sample some of the stuff being spewed out by the geyser, look at it under a microscope? Well, if we could just dream the dream and do what we'd like to do, we would go and land on the south polar terrain of Enceladus, and we would look at the icy particles that are coming out and see, do we have evidence for microorganisms themselves intact dead microorganisms in the icy particles. That's not out of the question if there were microorganisms in the water that produced those frozen droplets. And we'd want to look at the gas. Does the gas have any what we call biomarkers in it? Is it? Do we see the results of the metabolism of microorganisms? It's those kinds of things we would like to look for if we could. Well, finally, Carolyn, Enceladus is certainly appealing. You've made it sound very appealing. Uh, But it's not the only other place in the solar system where we might find life, extant or otherwise. I mean, there's Mars, of course. There are three moons of Jupiter that might have subsurface oceans. There's Titan, another moon of Saturn. There's maybe even the atmosphere of Venus. All of these have been suggested as possible locales for, for local denizens. If NASA could only send one major space mission to look for life in the solar system... Would you send it to Enceladus? Absolutely, without equivocation. And the reason for that is the environment on Enceladus is the most promising and most accessible of all the environments that you mentioned. Yes, we think that there are subsurface oceans on Europa and maybe the other Jovian moons. They are under, what, 10 kilometers worth of ice? And there there is no geysering phenomenon. So it's not readily available. And the environment on Europa, for example, is just bathed in an intense radiation that makes even the lifetime of any spaceship that we send there limited. So it's not the best place to go looking. Similar arguments could be made about Mars. We've been scratching at the surface of Mars now for a long time, and we're not finding it easy to say whether or not life got started there. And it may be that we have to go digging under the ice caps of Mars before we're in a position to say anything about it. That's also going to be far in the future. Titan, there's no liquid water on the surface. Yes, it has been proposed that maybe there are methane-producing organisms in the lakes of hydrocarbons, but that's an ecology and a biology that we're not sure could even work at the surface temperatures that we see on the surface of Titan. So that's highly speculative. On Enceladus, we have an environment where we think there's liquid water suffused with salt, organic compounds, fixed nitrogen in the presence of ammonia, Uh, excess heat, and it's spewing out into space available for us to just take a sample of. I'm fond of saying all we have to do is land on the surface, look up, and stick our tongue out, and we've got what we need to put ourselves in touch with this impressively, fantastically spectacular environment on the subsurface of Enceladus. So I think that is the go-to place. I suggest we go to Enceladus. We go directly to Enceladus. We do not pass go. We do not collect $200. And that would be my planetary program. Carolyn Porco, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Carolyn Porco is a planetary scientist and the leader of the Cassini imaging team.
<laughs> so, Seth, it wasn't clear to me. Is Carolyn Porco in favor of going to Enceladus or not? <laughs> well, she was a little ambiguous. <laughs> okay, we can go to Enceladus and to Europa and Mars, for that matter, and hunt for life. But even if we find microbial life... Where did that life come from? How did it begin? Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Before we talk about the origin of life on other planets, we might want to answer the question of how life began on this one. We still don't know. And as far as questions go, this is a big one. The idea that terrestrial life began in a primordial soup is still in play. But the question is, where was that soup? Could it have been Darwin's warm little pond or in a simmering volcano? Or in the ocean, in a hydrothermal vent, a rupture in the ocean floor where hot water, I mean really hot water, laced with minerals, spews into the briny deep? Well, this is the birthplace for life proposed by research scientist Michael Russell at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Now, Dr. Russell's proposal for the existence of alkaline hydrothermal vents, and alkaline means that it has the ability to neutralize acids, as being the place where life began on Earth goes back to more than a decade before the discovery of such vents at the lost city off the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. His work is so compelling, he was profiled in the journal Nature. Okay, so how to begin? And I mean that literally. In order to understand how life began, or what it is, you need to ask what it does. My comparison is trying to tell somebody who's never seen football before what soccer is about or what a jazz band is. You can't tell people what it is until they're immersed in it and listen to it for themselves. So to me, I would like to understand what life does rather than what life is. And what life does is basically to reduce carbon dioxide, which is in the atmosphere, even to this day, uh, with hydrogen, which is of great fuel, and react them together to make organic molecules, a small but ever-continuous supply of organic molecules, and of course all wrapped up in a nice membrane or skin. And so somehow if you ask what life does, if you get at the question that way, you can get at the question of how life began. Yes, I think so, because things like plants, trees, everything out there, the things we eat, uh, is all, they're all taken from carbon dioxide. Actually, it is the prebiotic molecule to my, to my mind. Uh, so right down the bottom of the food chain, everything we eat starts at the bottom of the food chain, and it does it by reducing carbon dioxide with hydrogen, either from water, through photosynthesis, of course, or indeed chemically under the deep oceans. So what you're saying is that life is about metabolism. It's not about replication, which is often how we think of it, that if it replicates, if it divides, then it's living. But you're saying the fundamental essence of what life is is about metabolizing. Uh, I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. That is the fundamental requirement of life, is to metabolize. That is to take in the food, which we think the basic food, as I say, is carbon dioxide, and, and basically it makes waste. So... The difference between reproduction and replication is very significant here, that you add that on after we've got a metabolizing vehicle at the origin of life. So the the problem is, how do we get that first vehicle? What is it like? What is its engine like? And what we would suggest is that the first fuel is hydrogen, and uh, that emanates from the planet anyway, from, from hot springs under the sea. And the gas that it uses to make the engine is carbon dioxide, and that's what makes the organic molecules. So that's the beginning of our engine, uh, and uh, we can keep on supplying that with energy. Eventually, of course, it has to go and find energy elsewhere because it'll run out of the local energy. So I always like to think of, uh, to use a modern parlance, I like to think of evolution as as the search engine for energies that are similar to those used right at the beginning of life. Hot springs, is that another word for hydrothermal vents? That is another word for hydrothermal vents. And there are various types of hydrothermal vents. There's some very famous ones now. They're called the black smokers. The temperature of the black smokers is about 350 to 400 degrees centigrade. That's hotter than any oven for cooking. So we think that that was not a good place for life to start. Although it's true that life uses these hot springs as a kind of oasis. So you have these lovely pictures of these deep springs with black smoke coming out, uh, with long tube worms three meters high and so forth, crabs and a few fish. I mean, they're beautiful things. And when they were first discovered, obviously the early workers thought maybe life started there. But we realized that it was just too hot. There is another spring. There's another spring, another kind of vent system. And and what's the name to that vent system that you think is actually a possible location for the beginning of life? Well, I'm a geologist to trade. So I've been looking at very ancient ore deposits where, and we thought that these were 
formed at different kinds of springs. And so we actually, I mean, part of this theory did predict that there should be alkaline springs in the deep sea and there'd be lower temperature. And fortunately, about 10 years after that, the famous Lost City was discovered. And that's a spring that's about 15 kilometers away from what's called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, 15 kilometers away from very hot springs. It's got about a 90 degrees centigrade. It's highly alkaline. It's got what we call a high pH of about 10 or 11. It's got a large quantity of hydrogen coming out in the springs, and it makes these beautiful towers, these white towers. And of course, it's called Lost City because of the myth of the Lost City of Atlantis. And of course, it's in the Atlantic Ocean out there. So Uh, If you haven't seen those pictures of Lost City, it's worth looking them up on on the web because they're beautiful structures and people like Deb Kelly at uh, Washington University have shown that these systems last for at least 30,000 years and maybe longer. And we think that's plenty of time for life to emerge. So we appeal to that kind of alkaline spring on the early Earth as the... Uh, womb of life, if you like, the hatchery of life, we think is an alkaline spring of this kind about four billion years ago. So maybe it's not lost city, but it could be lost hatchery. (laughs) Lost hatchery, yes. And unfortunately, we will never find that. And that's why we have to come to a laboratory like this to to, to try and reproduce the systems that we think existed on the early Earth. And, And that brings the question of what came first, life? Do you have all the inorganic molecules that you need to make life? Or do you have cells first? And and which do you think you need first? I think you need a compartment. I don't think there were organic molecules on the early Earth, so they had to be made from scratch, from the bottom up. So we think that the first cell membrane, if you like, uh, was not organic. It it wasn't made of lipids, that is, the the constituents of butter, for example. It it was made of inorganic materials like silica uh, and uh, little perhaps clay and certainly iron sulfides and and iron nickel sulfides. Uh, So that to us was the actual hatchery, the compartment. And it wasn't until I'd been playing chemical gardens with my son Andrew and uh, my daughter Bindi. Bindi was nine and Andrew was 11. And uh, I make these beautiful chemical gardens. I wasn't actually trying to teach them chemistry. I was just kind of showing off. What's a chemical garden? So a chemical garden, you, you take what's called sodium silicate solution. You can buy, I think you can still buy it at a chemist, although, of course, people are so much more careful of chemicals these days. But it's called water glass or, or sodium silicate solution. You add water to it. You should always use gloves if you're going to use this, a, a proper plastic gloves, because it does dissolve the skin. And you pop little crystals of cobalt chloride into these solutions and almost immediately you get these beautiful structures of cobalt blue structures and so forth lovely structures and they kind of grow up and and make these what are called gardens and uh, I put it on the mantelpiece and uh, everybody went to and and they thought it was beautiful and the next day I came home and to my chagrin I found that my son had locked himself in the bathroom and and, uh, wasn't communicating with me and I was telling him that he had to come and have his supper Andrew it's time for supper and there's no answer and I knew he was kind of messing around my chemical gardens and I was a bit worried about this but anyway he yelled out suddenly from the bathroom hey dad these things are hollow and I to my shame I hadn't realized they were hollow and I suddenly realized of course our fossils that we'd found in our in these mineral deposits in Ireland were actually chemical gardens so I went back into the lab the next day talked to my longtime collaborator Alan Hall and we decided to make these in the lab and we made iron sulfide chemical gardens very easily and we and one of us said this could be significant to the origin of life and that was 1983 a long time ago uh, we published a paper in Nature which which actually uh, acknowledges the professor of physical chemistry and my son Andrew so I paid my dues there so to speak and I've always been thankful for him and uh, Basically, we came out with a hypothesis, and I have to say I spent the next 20 years trying to understand our hypothesis. So then these hollow tubes that your son had discovered and others had discovered and that you put together as actually being these containers, as they were, were the early cells. That's what you're saying. Yes, exactly. That's what we're saying. Uh, They don't look like modern cells, but they've got some things in common with modern cells. For example, we think, uh, and we can make them in the lab, uh, of iron sulfide, and inside of them was 
is the hydrogen that was introduced from the hot spring. On the outside, we have the carbon dioxide in the ocean, that carbonic fizzy ocean. And the carbon dioxide comes into the, across the membrane, reacts with the hydrogen, catalyzed by things like, uh, or encouraged to react by things like iron and nickel sulfides. And that's where the organic molecules are generated. And uh, because this thing keeps growing and reproducing, because it, in a way they're like bubbles, they're getting blown up by this warm spring. Uh, so you get bubble after bubble, they keep failing and you get a new bubble. And within those bubbles, inorganic bubbles, eventually we get enough organic molecules generated to take over from the inorganic molecules. So we go from the inorganic to the organic at the emergence of life. And to this day, we have, for example, we have iron sulfides in our mitochondria and our skin. So even today, we have a kind of memory of the minerals that started off our quest for life, so to speak. Thank you very much. Thank you, Molly. I enjoyed that. Michael Russell is a research scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL, in Pasadena, California. Next, let's move on to a lighter, frothier topic than the origin of life and whether there's life elsewhere in the cosmos. That's right. Sit back and let your neurons unwind with a discussion of what is consciousness. One man claims to be aware of the answer. Big questions on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, here's a subject that's consciousness-raising, so I'm going to raise it. Consciousness. Another of the ginormous puzzling questions in science is referred to as the hard problem of consciousness, as in what is it and how did it arise? Now, some researchers in the field have said that this puzzle will probably never be solved. Because just look at the problem. We have a bunch of neurons and some other stuff, glial cells that make up our brain. That's all matter, material stuff. Yet from it springs this immaterial thing, consciousness. It can't be located or measured. So although the question of what it is seemingly can't be answered... Theoretical psychologist Nicholas Humphrey claims he's cracked it. He's worked on the hard problem of consciousness for 40 years at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge and has written a number of books on the subject. But in his latest, Soul Dust, The Magic of Consciousness, he proposes a radical new theory. Consciousness is a magical mystery show that we stage in our own heads. Dr. Humphrey, I'm going to call on your imaginative, descriptive powers, if I may. I wonder if you could describe for me what the sensation of consciousness feels like. I would say that consciousness is sensation. So it's what we wake up to every morning when the light shines through our bedroom window and we hear the birds outside and we smell the coffee drifting up the stairs. Our being, which had been unconscious, is now filled with this extraordinary magical phenomenon of sensation. And that's essentially what consciousness is, at least the kind of consciousness that I think is most puzzling and that presents the greatest problem for science. It's interesting that you chose the word sensation. Uh, I, I know I began with that word, but you chose the word sensation and not perception. And I understand that you make a distinction between the two in describing what consciousness is. I think we have to. I mean, the facts force it on us. And the most remarkable fact is that you can have cases where people with brain damage can either have sensation in the absence of perception or perception in the absence of sensation. The most extraordinary example of that is a phenomenon called blind sight, which occurs after damage to the visual cortex. When the subject will say, consciously he says he's blind, and yet that same subject can, if you ask him, point in the direction of a light or say what the shape of a figure is on a screen or even name the color of an object, he can perceive these facts about the world, but at the same time, there's nothing it's like to be him. He's not having sensations. So the subject is functionally blind, and yet he can perceive which direction the light is coming from? How, how is that possible? It's because the brain is a very clever device. It's got parallel systems in it, which undertake different functions to serve our needs. And it seems that sensation and perception are 
occupy different channels so that, well, perception is giving us information about what's out there in the world, all the information we need to act adaptively towards things out there. Sensation is telling us about our own personal interaction with the stimulation which is falling on our bodies, the light at our eyes or the sound at our ears or the taste on our tongue. Sensation is a personal response to the world touching us. And as I've described it, I think it involves a kind of bodily expression. Sensation is not just an objective representation of the facts. Sensation is how we feel about what's happening to us. Now, when you talk about the sensation of consciousness or that sensation is consciousness, in your book title and also just earlier in your response, you included the word magic, as in the magic of consciousness. And that's a provocative word usually found in realms of religion or spirituality and not science. I think science has been dealing with magic for a very long time. To some extent, of course, its job has been to take the magic out of phenomena, to unweave the rainbow, as the poet Keats said. But, of course, why we do science is because the world is full of mysterious and magical events. And I think that consciousness is the most extraordinary, the most magical phenomenon, certainly, that we encounter, and quite possibly the most magical phenomenon that exists in the universe. And I use it, the term magic in another sense, because in my account of how consciousness comes to have these qualities, I actually argue explicitly that it is a kind of magic, that our brains are laying on a kind of mystery show for us. We're the audience of something which we ourselves create, and which creates an illusion in our minds. It makes us think we're in the presence of phenomena which actually, in some sense, couldn't really exist. The simplest of sensations, like the sound of a bird singing or the sight of the blue sky, seem to have properties which can't be explained in material terms. And the account I give of that is that, yes, they do have properties which can't be accounted for in material terms because, in some sense, we're falling for an illusion. But it's an illusion which our own brains create in order to entertain us, in order to amaze us, and in the end, make our lives more interesting and more worthwhile. I think the phrase that you've used is a magical mystery show that's being played out in our own heads and that the brain is creating this show for our own benefit. Is that correct? Yes, we're the beneficiaries of it. I mean, think what life would be like without it. Who'd want to be a zombie? Who'd want to be in the condition of blindsight, which I mentioned where you have perception without the magic of sensation? And yet the puzzle remains of why natural selection designed our brains to do this, what the advantages can have been over evolutionary time. And in the end, that can only have one answer. It must be because it makes us more successful as biological organisms. And I've been working over many years now and trying to get to the bottom of that puzzle. And my new line is a rather different one from what I've argued before or from what anyone else has done. Most people have thought about the question of the function of consciousness have thought that consciousness must be providing us with some kind of skill, some kind of cognitive skill in proving our intelligence or our ability to think or remember or make decisions. I don't think it's like that at all. I think consciousness is more like a kind of theater. It is this magical mystery show we lay on. And its role, like the role of the best of theater, isn't to provide us with a skill, but is to change our attitudes towards the world we live in and our attitudes to the very kind of people which we ourselves are. So people have gone looking for what's consciousness giving us at the level of intelligence are barking up the wrong tree. They should be asking, how does it change our lives in ways which make us function in ways we wouldn't do otherwise? For example, making us love life in a way we wouldn't do otherwise, or fear death in a way we wouldn't do otherwise, or beyond that to a sense of metaphysical importance, the sense of having souls, of having immaterial souls, all of which ideas, of course, amplified by culture, have proved to be astonishingly fruitful for human beings. It sounds as though, I mean, in short, that consciousness provides life with meaning. And I wonder if the sensation of being alive didn't feel meaningful, maybe humans wouldn't feel compelled to go on. Why would we get out of bed every day? Perhaps it's, consciousness is wrapped into this idea as well? There were animals before us which weren't even unconscious, which nonetheless figuratively got out of bed or crawled out of their tunnels in the sand. So, of course, life can be motivated even without this additional magical quality, which we all make so much of. But the fact that life could exist 
without consciousness doesn't detract from the idea that life exists on another plane with consciousness. That are reasons for getting out of bed and enjoying life and going on and nurturing other conscious souls who we interact with, our family, our friends, has taken on quite a new significance because we treat other people and we treat ourselves as having almost this godlike existence. We are above nature. We're not just matter. We're not just dust flying around the planet. We have got something which is valuable in the absolute long term. And that's an extraordinary revelation about ourselves. Mind you, I'm saying, of course, it's an illusion in some sense, but it's an illusion which is life-empowering. Consciousness made us fear death and do everything we could not to go into that oblivion. Animals don't think about death. They don't understand death. Humans, for the first time of any animal on Earth, faced up to death and do face it every day of their lives. And, of course, we fear death more than anything because we fear the loss of consciousness. Nicholas Humphrey, thank you very much for speaking with us. It was a great pleasure, Molly. Nicholas Humphrey is a theoretical psychologist who's held positions at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. An author of many books, his most recent is Soul Dust, The Magic of Consciousness. Okay, so there are many big questions in science that we haven't touched on in this program, but we have solved, according to our guests, the origin of life. Check. Where to find life elsewhere in the universe. Check. The nature of consciousness. Check, check. And there is, let me see here, oh yes, there's the question of what the universe is made of and how it began. Three minutes, Molly. Three minutes is the time it takes to soft-boil an egg. You might spend three minutes brushing your teeth with a slow electric toothbrush. It takes three minutes to run out the door to the bus, remember you've forgotten your wallet, run back, dig out your keys, open the door, run inside, grab your wallet from the countertop, wipe off the jam, leave, lock the door, and run back to the bus. I mean, that's how long it takes some people. And three minutes is the interval from the creation of the universe to when it finished cooking up its basic building blocks. And three minutes is the time that we allowed physicist Saul Perlmutter to summarize the big unanswered questions about the physics of the universe. The clock is ticking. Go. For tens of thousands of years, humans have wondered about what kind of universe we live in, how did it get there, what's it made out of, and we made very slow progress. I mean, you'd have to say we were just warming up until just this past century, and then we really started to cook. I think, you know, beginning with Einstein's theory of general relativity and then through the decades of new technology, we've finally started to get a handle on a picture of what's going on. And this had to explain why is it that we're seeing a universe that appears to be expanding, all the distances are getting bigger, and it had to include the elements that we see and the way in which the galaxies are shaped and the way in which they cluster. And all those questions have started to make a little bit of sense just in the past, oh, maybe past few decades even. We have this picture of a universe that used to be very, very hot and dense, a, what we've now called the Big Bang, although it's not much of a bang, and then it became emptier and more and more dilute as it expanded, and the distances all became bigger. And that allowed us to even calculate, oh, you know, how much helium we should have in the universe and how the galaxies would form and, and how they would cluster into groups. And the picture is actually beginning to sort of fall into place, except that we have some huge mysteries that we just still haven't gotten to the bottom of. So we really don't understand what most of the stuff of the universe is made out of. Now, that means that the ordinary gravitationally attractive stuff that we call mass, it's about, you know, maybe one-fifth of it um, do we recognize as the material that we see around us every day. And there's still this, uh, this vast amount of what we call dark matter that we have some ideas of some of its properties, but we really have no idea exactly what it is. It could be a new elementary particle of some kind, and we're still in the business of trying to find that out. Then there's an even bigger problem, which is that three-quarters of the stuff of the universe is not even ordinary gravitationally attractive stuff. It apparently is this thing that we're calling at the moment dark energy, just because we don't know what else to call it, which makes the universe want to get bigger and bigger, faster and faster. And it's causing the universe to expand at an accelerating rate. And this, of course, we only just found in the past though, a dozen years or so. So if we're going to understand what the universe we live in looks like, we, we better understand that other three quarters as well. And then finally, we're, we're still trying to put the whole story together with the very, very basic physics, the elementary particle physics that we do understand pretty well. And we haven't yet figured out how to make gravity fit together with the rest of our story of the forces of electromagnetism and the other forces that hold the nucleus of atoms together. 
so there's still this final big picture that we have to put all together at one time. Once we've done that, maybe, maybe then we can make a step towards what's probably the biggest question of all, which is why do you get a Big Bang in the first place? What's going on that sets the whole thing up and gets it going? And I think if we could even think about how you could get to the answer to that kind of question, then we, we might feel like we're, we've really gotten somewhere. That was terrific, Saul. Maybe you need to catch your breath, but I have just a few follow-up questions, if you don't mind. No, no, let's go on. Despite all this effort, despite 4,000 years of astronomy and a whole lot of refereed publications, you know, 96% of the universe is unknown. Isn't that a colossal failure? Well, you could say that given what information we've been allowed to see, we've done amazingly well. We get these little fragments of a photon here and a, and a, and a little bit less of magnetic radiation there, and nonetheless, we've managed to pull together this pretty comprehensive picture of the outlines of what we're doing with here. If you were at a dinner table and somebody turns to you and asks, Saul, was there maybe more than one Big Bang? Could there be parallel universes? What do you tell them? I think that it's absolutely easy to imagine that if our universe got started in some way or other, that you could imagine that other universes got started as well. On the other hand, it's also true that unless there's some form of contact between these different universes or some way in which the presence of one makes the other one more likely or less likely, in some sense, it's almost a philosophical question as to whether or not you count that as another universe or whether you, you, you know, until you have some reason to include it in the story, it, it always feels to me like it's just going a little bit too far. You don't need it yet. So we don't know what dark energy is. We don't know what dark matter is. What's the uh, prognosis here? Are we going to know the answers to these big picture questions uh, within our lifetimes? You know, we, we could go for thousands of years um, and have a, you know, draw a blank and not, and not get there. But at this point, the good news is that we actually have measurements to make. We have experiments we can do um, that are stimulated by these questions of dark matter and dark energy. And as long as you can go out and collect data, you usually will discover something. Saul Perlmutter, thank you very much for talking with me. It's a pleasure. Saul Perlmutter is a physicist at the University of California, Berkeley, and a senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, where he heads the Supernova Cosmology Project. And his team was one of two that discovered the evidence for the acceleration of the expansion of the universe. And speaking of expansion, Seth, we began with your apartment in Charlottesville, Virginia. And moved out until we got to the most profound cosmic questions. No, not all the answers are firm and not all the answers are in. But this generation may finally unwrap the greatest mysteries of the universe, a privilege and an opportunity that our ancestors never, ever had. Thanks to our larger-than-life, big-picture science production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Keith Rosendahl, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. Thanks also to our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. If you're a podcast listener and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry our program. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.